Paul wanted to visit Rome. He realized that the city's strategic importance made it a top priority on his travel list. He'd heard of glowing reports of a growing church at the very heart of the empire. Paul happened to be spending the spring of 58 AD in the Greek town of Corinth. One day he heard that a friend of his, a friend from a neighboring village, the village of Sincrea, was headed for Rome. And so he asked Phoebe if she would deliver a letter. Paul was headed to Jerusalem for the feast. He'd been warned of danger awaiting him, possibly even death. This letter to the Romans might be his last opportunity to expound the glorious truths that God had given him. So he handed this letter, gave it to Phoebe, and she embarked on her journey. It was the skeptic Renan who commented, When Phoebe sailed from the port of Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. And how right he was. What Paul thought was his final opportunity became his finest effort. Romans was Paul's theological masterpiece. Almost every Bible doctrine finds its best defense and its fullest explanation in Paul's letter to the Romans. Throughout the ages, this one book has single-handedly sparked revivals, incited revolutions, altered the history of nations, transformed billions of lives. The great preacher John Chrysostom thought so highly of Paul's letter to the Romans that he read it once a week for 18 years. Pastor Donald Barnhouse used to say that the Bible, the Bible of any believer should be so worn that it automatically falls open to the book of Romans. For the next few weeks, we'll be gleaning from this field of plenty called Romans. Well, the book begins, Paul. And you'll remember the ancients began their letters the way that we end them, with a signature. Since letters were written on scrolls, they put their signature first so that you didn't have to completely unroll the scroll to find out who it was from. The author here is Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And you think about the different ways that Paul could have introduced himself. Warrior of the faith, illustrious theologian, pastor of churches, missionary to the nations. Instead, Paul opts for bondservant, or literally love slave. And this refers to a situation spoken of in Exodus chapter 21. In ancient Israel, if you couldn't pay your debts, you didn't file for bankruptcy. You worked off what you owed as your creditor's slave. And some people fared better as a slave in the house of a benevolent master than they did on their own. Well, in such cases, when the debt was paid, it was, wasn't uncommon for the slave to actually choose to remain with, with his former creditor. The owner then would press his servant's ear to the threshold, the doorpost of the house. And then he would drive a sharp awl through the lobe of his ear. That slave's pierced ear became the symbol that he had voluntarily given himself to his master. That from now on he would serve his master for love and for gratitude, not just for, for debt. 
You know, you and I have a similar relationship with Jesus. He's forgiven our debt. Hey, we owe him our all, do we not? We are slaves to the master. And yet once you spend time in the master's house, you begin to realize how gracious and how generous he is to his slaves. You learn that life with Jesus is far better than life could be on your own, that you could even achieve yourself. We may start out serving the Lord out of obligation, but ultimately, for those of us who know him, we end up serving him from appreciation. Like Paul, hopefully you are a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul was also called to be an apostle. The word apostle means to be sent out. Paul was not your self-appointed preacher. He was called and he was commissioned by God himself. You know, you can tell if a pastor was sent or if he just went. You can. Paul was sent by God, called and commissioned by the Lord himself. Well, verse 1 also tells us that Paul was separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice Paul was devoted to one message, the gospel of God. And God's gospel is all about his son, his son Jesus. Note the three truths that Paul mentions about Jesus in these verses. First, he is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Second, he reigns according to the lineage of King David. And then thirdly, he's been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good pedigree. You know, the case for Jesus as God's Messiah is airtight. He claimed to be the Lord of the universe and Savior of the world through prophecy, through pedigree, and then through power, the power of his resurrection. Well, verse 5 Through him we have received grace. And here is the theme of the letter to the Romans. We have received grace. Grace is love that we don't deserve and that we could never earn. Grace is God's love. I like to call it love that's on the house. You remember Paul started out a Jewish rabbi. He lived under the law and he felt a constant pressure to perform. What a relief it was when he discovered God's grace. When Paul embraced Jesus, he was loved despite what he did or who he was or what he didn't do. God didn't ask Paul to try but to trust. Salvation was not me do, but he did. God called Paul not to be to a responsibility. He was simply saying, respond to me. This is what grace is. There's a legend about a young man who fell in love with this very wicked woman. His mother disliked this gal and tried to break up the relationship. Well, the man ignored his mom, and he moved in with this woman. One night, the vengeful woman got the young fellow drunk. She told him the only way that he could prove his love to her was to kill his mom, cut out her heart, bring it back as a trophy. I told you she was an evil woman. Well, this young man, he stumbled through the streets to his mom's house. He went in with a butcher knife, stabbed her, carved out her heart. But as he was staggering back 
with the prize in his hand. He fell to the ground. He dropped his mother's heart. As the legend goes, when he reached down to pick up her bleeding heart, she spoke to him, my son, are you hurt? My son, are you hurt? And this is how cruel we've been to Jesus, is it not? We stabbed the nails into his hands and feet. We broke our Lord's heart. And yet he still speaks lovingly to each of us. Child, are you hurt? This is God's grace. Grace is the father kissing the prodigal son. It's Jesus saying to the adulteress, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's his prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Grace changed everything for Paul. It turned labor into love. Don't be surprised if this book changes you as well. Well, verse 5, Through him, that is Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. As an ambassador of grace, God had issued Paul a visa to all the nations. Grace, God's grace is obviously for every race. And then verse 7, Paul addresses his readers to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. You know, erroneously throughout church history, saints have been thought of as special Christians. The saints are thought to be the all-stars, you know, the hall of famers. But not so. The word saint simply means to set apart. You either belong to Jesus or you don't. You're either his or you're not. You're either a saint or an ain't. And Paul greets these saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, of course, are the bookends of faith, grace, and peace. Grace is our origination. It's where we start with God. Peace is our culmination. A believer starts out with grace and ends up with his peace. And then Paul says of the Romans, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The church of Rome at the time had quite a reputation. It was one of the most renowned churches in all of the ancient world. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. This church was spoken of around the world, but one of the reasons may have been that Paul spoke of them often before God's throne. Though he had never visited this church, he prayed for them diligently. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were a group of Jews from Rome. It could be that they were converted by Peter's sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit that day, and then returned to Rome to start a church. And over the years, their church became famous, not for its building, Not for its pastor, not for its size, not for its organization. Notice this church was renowned for their faith. And if ever our church becomes famous, I hope it's because of our faith. 
Well, Paul wanted to visit the church at Rome, and he tells us why, verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Folks usually flock to Rome for amusement and entertainment. Rome hosted the Forum, and then later the famous Colosseum. NASCAR fans could catch a chariot race at the Circus Maximus there in Rome. But in the belly of this vast city, beneath all of the glitz and all of the glamour, were a small group of people, precious and important to God. Paul desired to visit Rome so that he could build up these believers to give to them and receive from them. And isn't this what church is all about? To give and to receive? You know, the church is like a blood bank, if you think about it. Some days you go to donate blood. Other days you go to get a transfusion. Sometimes you give, sometimes you receive. Here Paul says he wants to go to Rome to impart a spiritual gift. And then verse 13, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. For I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Paul had wanted to come to Rome, but he had been busy elsewhere, obviously. Paul sensed the responsibility to all men. You know, it's interesting. Paul owed God for his grace, but his debt was made payable to his fellow man. And this is true of us. This is how we say thanks to Jesus for the grace and the goodness he's poured out upon us. How? By loving those that he died to save. Paul had tasted God's grace, and he responds, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. History documents that long before the Goths and Vandals rode their horses into Rome, the city collapsed internally. Rome became rich and privileged and spoiled. Rome was constantly lusting for new ways to be entertained. The Romans became lawless out of sheer boredom. Tacitus wrote of the city's perverse attitude, the greater the infamy, the wilder the delight. That's the way it was in Rome. Roman civilization fell victim to moral collapse. Here's how it happened. Rome lost respect for human life. Babies were viewed as an inconvenience and left at the market to be sold into slavery. Marital fidelity became unheard of, an unheard of virtue. The debutantes of Rome actually dated years by the names of their husbands. They had so many. Fourteen of the first 15 emperors became so bored with the natural appetite for women that they sought perverse pleasures in homosexual acts. Romans legitimized homosexuality even with young boys. Imagine this, the wife of Caesar Claudius, the empress Agrippina, would leave her palace at night and work in the brothels just for the sheer sake of lust. You've heard of Skid Row? Well, welcome to Skid Rome. Rome was raunchy. It was a rowdy place. 
And yet Paul wasn't intimidated. He was ready to preach in Rome. Why? Because he was proud of the gospel. And he declares his confidence in its power. In verse 16 he states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is needed to save a wicked place like Rome? You need a powerful gospel. And Paul had one. Understand, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest change agent known to man. The truth that Jesus died to forgive our sins and rise to live in our hearts has the ability to transform people's lives. In fact, it can transform history and culture and even the future. This is why churches that stray from the gospel do a disservice to both God and man. We need to trust in the gospel of Jesus, enough to share it with our friends for sure. Well, beginning in chapter 3, Paul is going to explain the gospel. But his first strategy is to convince us of our need. See, it's been said, before the good news can be received, the bad news has to be believed. In other words, you don't sense your need for a Savior until you first recognize your sin. And in the last half of chapter 1, Paul dissects the downward spiral of Roman culture. He discusses three stages of their moral and spiritual disintegration. In verses 18 to 21, Paul shows how the world system, the system of Rome, both then and now, suppresses the truth. Verses 22 to 27 describe how it confuses the truth. And then verses 28 through 32 reveal how it transgresses or violates the truth. And even today, the world that we live in, it too suppresses the truth and confuses the truth and ultimately transgresses against the truth. Well, Paul begins in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 17 told us that the gospel of Christ reveals the righteousness of God. Now in verse 18, heaven reveals the wrath of God. Reject or ignore God's righteousness and you become subject to his wrath. Once a country church sat next door to a parcel of farmland owned by an avid atheist. This was a mean, godless man. Every Sunday morning, this atheist, he would go out he would rev up his tractor to try to drown out the pastor's message. Well, when the harvest came and his fields yielded a bumper crop, he considered it proof that God didn't exist. One year he wrote the church a haughty letter boasting of his efforts. But I love the way the pastor replied. He wrote a single sentence response. He said, Dear sir, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. It may be now, or it may be later, but a Christ-rejecting world will eventually taste the terrible wrath of Almighty God. For Paul says of God's wrath that it is against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness is the rejection of God's authority. Unrighteousness is the rejection of God's standards. You see, a rebellious man first denies God's existence, then he defies God's commandments. You know, 50 years ago, Bible reading and prayer were part of our public school curriculum. And at the time, the top disciplinary problems for our educators were chewing gum in class, talking out of turn, and being late, you know, for your assignments. Today, we've eliminated God from the classroom. We've excluded prayer from the subject matter. We've outlawed prayer and we've made it illegal for our teachers to read or consult the Bible. And now our schools have metal detectors to screen for guns and knives, police dogs that sniff out drugs, girls that can't go to the restroom by themselves for fear of being raped. It's tragic. And I'm not naive. I know our problems are more complex than just the absence of Bible reading. But our schools do illustrate a truth, ungodliness produces unrighteousness. When you reject God's authority, what comes next is a defiance of God's commands. When people stop believing in God, there's no higher authority to govern their behavior. Right and wrong are now up for grabs. And modern society, like ancient Rome, has suppressed the truth of God. And in doing so, they have opened wide the floodgates of unrighteousness. Verse 19 People suppress the truth because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, when we think of how God reveals Himself, we usually think of the Bible, But even without the Bible, there is much that we know about God. The knowledge of God is revealed to men in at least two ways, Paul says. First, there is a knowledge in them, that is, in their hearts. And second, God reveals himself to them in the heavens. Man looks within, and he finds evidence for God. Man looks upward, and he sees proof of God's existence. You know, just as animals have migratory instincts, people are made with an intuitive knowledge of God. I believe the Creator implants within each human heart a homing device. It never shuts off until we find our way back to Him. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 9 says it well. God has put eternity in their hearts. A childhood disease left Helen Keller without sight and hearing and speech. As a young girl, she was taught tirelessly by her dedicated teacher, Ann Sullivan. Ann taught Helen Braille and eventually how to talk. And when Ann first told her about God, the young girl said to her teacher that she already knew about God. She just didn't know His name. It was proof that there is an innate knowledge, an innate knowledge of God in every, each and every one of us. Look inward and you find evidence for God. But look upward to the sky, and there too you will behold His glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 puts it, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. It's been said nature was the first missionary. During the French Revolution, one of the atheistic revolutionaries bragged to a believing peasant. He said, we will pull down all that reminds you of God. The faithful Christian replied, then pull down the stars. Think of it. You and I were sitting on a ball 25,000 miles in circumference. This little ball we're on weighs six septillion 588 sextillion ton, and it hangs unsupported in the nothingness of space. And yet planet Earth spins at a thousand miles per hour while it barrels through space at a thousand miles per minute. And your Bible doesn't even fall off your lap. Can you imagine? I'm sorry, but I don't have enough faith to believe that that kind of engineering occurs by chance. A world of order requires an orderly God. Design necessitates a designer. To the unbiased observer, God is an obvious reality. And yet Paul says that despite the enormous weight of evidence, people still suppress the truth. They resist it with excuses. They ignore the obvious. They try to keep the truth under wraps. Yet Paul says the evidence is so overwhelming, mankind is without excuse. Hey, it's not that we can't believe in God, it's that we won't believe. If a person concedes that God exists, then he's no longer the captain of his own ship. Hey, once you admit there's God, there's a God, then you're accountable to that God. That's why sinful man suppresses the obvious. It's scandalous for a society which prides itself on tolerance, like ours, to be tolerant of every ideology except biblical Christianity. Yet that's where we are today, people suppressing the truth. Several years ago, the school board in Pullen County, Illinois, prohibited a school from having a traditional Christmas nativity in the front yard of their campus. The school's principal was so furious He wrote the following on the school's message board out in front. The Board of Education is jealous of our nativity scene, for on the board they cannot find three wise men or a virgin. I believe even the most ungodly, ardent atheist knows deep down inside the truth about God. Yet he or she hardens their heart. And suppresses the truth. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Here's a warning. It's possible to know God, even benefit from God's blessings, yet fail to acknowledge the giver of those blessings. When your life goes well, do you take the credit? Or do you talk it... Chalk it up to chance? Or do you truly praise God? Some folks talk as if God is a non-issue. They take Him for granted. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds 
and four-footed animals and creeping things. Remember, the world in Paul's day worshipped idols. They turned birds and beasts and bumblebees into gods. And you know, people today do the same. They worship birds and beasts and bumblebees. Their weekends revolve around falcons and bulldogs and yellow jackets. You can turn anything into an idol, even a bird or a beast or a bee. Idolatry is giving a greater glory to the creature than the creator. It's placing a matter of secondary importance in a primary position in your life. They're idolaters today. Paul says people become futile in their thoughts and professing to be wise. They became fools. Smart people stop thinking rationally. And this happens when people suppress the truth about God. Hey, once a man rejects the most important thing, which is God, he tends to fall for anything. It never ceases to amaze me how brilliant folks will refuse to believe in God yet they read their horoscope religiously. Or they'll go and visit a palm reader. They won't pray, but they'll visit a palm reader. Give me, you're kidding. College professors who will never pick up a Bible and dismiss outright the idea that God became a man and came to earth in Jesus Christ seriously believe that we've been visited by aliens from another planet. Evolution is another example of professing to be wise they became fools. Despite the absence of any missing links, despite the near zero probability of life forming by chance, despite criticisms from their own camp, despite not a shred of hard scientific evidence to support their theories, they still believe in the evolution of life. The strength of a prejudice is amazing. Famed philosopher Malcolm Muggeridge, he once said, I'm convinced the theory of evolution will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious an hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible gullibility that it has. Remember, once you concede there's a God, then you become accountable to Him. That's why people don't want to do that. They want to suppress the truth. Modern man doesn't want to be accountable to anyone but himself. This is how darkness has taken over. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Having worshipped animals, they began to live like animals. See, over time a person grows to resemble whatever it is that they worship. We become like what it is we worship. After teaching our kids that all they are, they've ascended from apes, why are we surprised when they monkey around? Teach a child that he or she is nothing but an animal, and they'll become a party animal. Why expect a kid to develop spiritual appetites and moral standards if you tell them that all they consist of are glands and hands? Today's moral relativism doesn't give folks a reason why one human whim is any more right or wrong than another. People are driven by their lusts to dishonor their bodies. They've lost any concept of the sanctity of human sexuality. They've given themselves over to uncleanness. He says, who also exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature 
rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Notice they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Imagine this, a society that calls right wrong and calls wrong right. Today, homosexuality is no longer labeled a dysfunction, let alone a sin. It's a protected preference. Abortion isn't murder. It's a woman's right to choose. Gender isn't our biological reality. It's an assignment now based on somebody's feelings. A family of one father and one mother is no longer the optimum environment for raising kids. Now, any configuration will do. When pleasing and honoring the creature becomes more important than obeying the creator, then truly the patients have taken over the asylum. Here's what's happened. To avoid God's authority, we have suppressed the truth. And then to convince ourselves that we're right, we have confused the truth to normalize the pathological and the deviant. We have created a new set of ethics to conform to our perversions. Here's how topsy-turvy the world has become. As Paul says, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Throw out the creator God and humanity becomes a slave to the creation. Animal rights and environmental concerns take precedent over human needs. In the absence of our Judeo-Christian ethic, humanity loses its uniqueness. We're no longer viewed as made in God's image. Now we're a privileged species of animal who has oppressed other species and needs to be put back in its place. The Bible teaches that God created us in His image and gave us dominion over the rest of creation, including the animals and including nature and the environment. Nature and animals are meant to serve man's needs. Animals exist to provide us milk and meat and wool. But without God and the Bible, in a strictly pagan world, rather than humans taking charge of nature and using it for our benefit, we become nature's slave. We end up caring more about animal rights than we do human welfare. Several years ago, I read where a doctor was anesthetizing cats, and then he was shooting them with a BB gun, hold with me, to find ways to help humans traumatized by gunshot wounds recover and get better. In other words, his research was helping injured soldiers. You'd think that would be a noble cause, wouldn't you? Yet his experiments were stopped by animal rights activists who thought Snowball and Fluffy were more important than Sergeant and First Class. The truth is, man is not an animal. It is a confused society that puts animal life on a par with human life. Unlike animals, man was made in God's image and has an eternal soul. But in verse 26, it gets worse. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. In his commentary on Romans, Donald Barnhouse writes this, The last nine verses in the first chapter of Romans are the most terrible in the Bible. The scene is frightful. Three times now in three verses, verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul tells us God gave them up. Or God gave them over. Realize, 
God's wrath is poured out. God judges sinners by letting them pursue sin with an unbridled passion. In other words, he looses the restraints. That's how he judges us. He pours out his wrath on people bent on sinning by allowing them to pursue their sin and reap its consequences. Think about it. It's a just punishment. You get what you ask for. And in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul tells us how you know when God has turned loose of a society. You know, when an indicator light appears on my dashboard, starts to flash, I know there's a problem with my car. And likewise, there are cultural indicators that a society is in deep trouble. In fact, Paul gives us 23 indicators that society is on the verge of collapse. But the primary clear-cut indicator that God has given a people over to sin is the cultural acceptance and legitimization of homosexuality. Listen to what Paul says in the next two verses. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. When it comes to sexual deviance, women are usually less prone than men. But in Rome, even the women behaved in unnatural ways. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Debased means cast away or or rejected. Realize a relationship with God requires that you accept God's rules. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can't play a game if you reject the rules of that game. I can play football and I can violate the rules. Say I'm offsides. I get penalized five yards. That's okay. I mean, the game of football allows for me to break the rules, but I first have to admit that there are rules or I can't play the game. And so it is with a relationship with God. A repentant mind sins, but it admits it's sin and it desires to change. Whereas a debased mind sins, but then refuses to admit there's such a thing as sin or rejects God's definition of it. Thus, the ultimate destiny for those who suppress God's truth is that God stops working with them. He stops convicting them and wooing them back to himself. He gives them up to their own lies. And as a consequence, their evil becomes set in stone. A debased mind participates in deviant behavior without the slightest twinge of guilt And then it demands that you accept that behavior. It becomes militant in its quest for legitimacy. And I'm sorry, but this describes perfectly today's homosexual community. LGBT advocates are no longer content to practice their perversion privately. They want it normalized. They're trying to socialize our children and our society 
to see homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. They desire to be a privileged group with legal protections and force acceptance of their lifestyle onto the rest of society. They've justified their rejection of God's order, and God has given them up. In verses 26 and 27, Paul tells us four truths about homosexuality. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not noble. And it's not neutral. First, it's not natural. Paul says both women and men left, and I quote, the natural use of the opposite sex to lust after those of the same sex. I've got no pictures for this. Well, I do have the one, I guess. But a quick peek at male and female genitalia reveals a natural anatomical fit. When men and women mate, have you noticed their parts connect? The same natural congruity doesn't exist within same-sex unions. The Bible teaches that God created gender. Men are designed sexually for women, just as women are tailored for men. Heterosexuality was dictated by God. It's how he intended for men and women to function. You know, the research often cited to support the theory that people are born homosexual is seriously flawed. For 25 years, Dr. Robert Cromeyer, he worked with homosexuals and he concluded this, with rare exceptions, homosexuality is neither inherited nor a result of some glandular disturbance or the scrambling of genes or chromosomes. Homosexuals are made, not born. I firmly believe homosexuality is a learned response to early painful experiences. Thus, it can be unlearned. And yet, for the sake of our argument, what if it were proven one day that a gay gene actually does exist? Does that mean that we should condone and legitimize homosexual behavior? Say a person is biologically predisposed to alcoholism or depression. Should we ignore the disorder or should we try to treat the victim if we can? Or if a person is prone to violence, should we then legitimize all violence? Certainly not. The point is, is that if the Bible is God's word and it says that this is not natural, then it is a behavior that should be avoided. Well, second, neither is homosexuality normal. I believe that there are two roots from which homosexual behavior stems. First is gender attachment. Through abuse or through neglect, people at early ages can develop abnormal psychological attractions. This is the homosexual who may not understand why he feels or she feels the way she does. But the homosexual that Paul is describing in Romans 1 I quote, burns in his lust. This is a different set of causes. Here's a person who is eaten up with desire. This is the person who gets bored with heterosexual experiences. And in their quest for greater thrills, they flirt with a taboo. He or she swings back and forth. This is the Madonna and Britney Spears pushing the boundaries. This is Katy Perry, I kissed a girl phenomenon. 
This is what happened in the bathhouses of ancient Rome. The brothels no longer satisfied appetites, and so perverse Romans adopted an anything-goes sexuality. Paul says that homosexuality is not natural, and it's not normal. And, he says, it's not noble. He describes homosexual practices as, I quote, men with men committing what is shameful. The Greek word shameful can be translated deformed. Such practices twist God's original intention. Ephesians 5 teaches us that heterosexual marriage is meant as a picture of Christ's relationship with His church. Homosexuality distorts and perverts this picture. It masculinizes the feminine or the female and it feminizes the male. It disrupts the God-given roles and identities that God intended to speak spiritual truths. Well, finally, God says homosexuality is not natural, it's not normal, it's not noble, and it's not neutral. For these acts come with a punishment. He says, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Don't be naive. You cannot buck God and nature and not pay the piper. Giving in to homosexual tendencies takes a terrible toll. A seared conscience, insecurities, loneliness, depression, guilt, confusion are all the price of perversion, not to mention health dangers. Even though AIDS can be contracted in a number of ways, still 70% of its victims are homosexual. Depression, substance abuse, even suicide are far greater among homosexuals than the rest of the population. Paul isn't saying that homosexuals are not loved by God and that Jesus didn't die on the cross to take away even the sin of homosexuality. Hey, it is not natural. It is not noble. It is not normal. It is not neutral. But it is forgivable. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that phrase. Such were some of you. In the Corinthian church, there were former homosexuals who had been forgiven and set free. It was proof that no sin is beyond the reach of God's grace. As I said earlier, Paul is saying homosexuality is an indicator that a society is in trouble, that it's strayed dangerously far from God, at least the legitimization of it. But there are other indicators. In fact, a long list begins in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Let me run through this list quickly. Sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It can apply to any form of illicit sexual arousal or activity. Recall, Paul was writing from Corinth. 
Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world. All these things were evidenced there in Corinth. He also mentions wickedness. The Greek word means to work or to toil at wickedness. Do you know anybody that works at wickedness? Covetousness. It's greed. Covetousness is the itch for more. Maliciousness is the desire to do physical harm to another person. Strife is the tendency to argue just for the sake of arguing. Backbiters are those who inflict wounds with their words. Inventors of evil things. Today, these are the folks that work in Hollywood. Disobedient to parents. The disrespect for authority and the idolization of youth is epidemic in our society today. Undiscerning is the failure to learn from the past. It's being unteachable, untrustworthy. This is when people no longer honor their agreements and keep their promises with each other. That kind of society is on its way to ruin, Paul says. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. It was said of Rome how pitiless she was. Amid all the ruins of her cities, we find no hospitals or orphanages. In an age that made many orphans, Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast, made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor. See, Rome was proof that anarchy and brutality await people who have no heart, who have no love, no compassion for each other. Verse 32, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And I think Paul saved the worst indictment for last. You should think of verse 32 the next time you sit down to watch an ungodly or an unrighteous movie. Oh, you may not cheat on your spouse, but do you cheer on the actor who does? You may not take God's name in vain, but do you watch movies that do it frequently? You know, Paul says, those who practice such things are deserving of death, but not only those, but those who approve of those who practice them, those who watch it and participate vicariously. Do we give placid approval to what God hates by the things that we watch and allow to entertain us? It's called guilt by association. We need to repent. In the day when payphones were used, do you remember those things called payphones? Back in those days, a man called his wife. When the conversation was over and he'd hung up, the phone rang back. Well, the man figured it was the operator telling him to put another coin into the machine. It was the operator. But she didn't say anything about money. This is what she said. Sir, I thought you would just like to know that right after you hung up, your wife told you that she loved you. What a nice gesture. And here's how we need to close Romans chapter 1. Even though we live in a society that has hung up on God, He still calls. He still loves us. And He still wants us to know it. 
And he wants us to know that if we repent, he will forgive. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still in effect. It is the power of God to those who believe.